Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. This and the following podcast center around two distinct tellings of the story of Christianity. Uh, the one we will go through today is a telling of the story of Christianity through a sophistic lens. So what would the story of Christianity from creation to redemption and the eschaton look like if the God of the Bible were understood as a sophist would understand God? The story will sound familiar, it will contain a lot of Christian ideas, but they'll be distorted a bit, twisted into an ugly caricature of the real thing. The problem, of course, is that we are almost all sophists. Sophistry is our default outlook on life, on anthropology, and on theology. So our goal here is to expose how ugly our sophistic tendencies make the beauty of Christianity. We'll follow up in the next podcast talking about Christianity through a, well, a Christian lens. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the TF Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for news, information about our nonprofit, as well as ways to contact us, support us, or get involved with our work here. If you want to contact me and Joel directly, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or follow us on Twitter at Wondering Wisdom. And in both the email and the Twitter handle, there's an underscore where the A or the O would be in Wondering. That's wondering at tacticalfaith.com or at Wondering Wisdom. Enjoy. So last time on our podcast, we solved the euthyphro dilemma for you. Or, well, some people wouldn't say we solved it. We, I, it's probably more accurate to say that we said we showed that the euthyphro dilemma is really based on a misunderstanding of God, especially in the Christian context. We talked about how the when if you hold to a so sophistic view of God, uh, like the sophists, like Euthyphro would have, the dilemma makes perfect sense. But that's not what Plato was thinking of when he thought of the gods, and that's definitely not what we think of as Christians when we think of of the triune God that we we worship and love. Today, we want to dig deeper into this. What what does it mean to have a picture of God that does not fall into a sophistic kind of understanding of God. We've we've pointed at in previous episodes ways that we tend to want to, to move our view of God in that sophistic direction. And so today we're going to try and talk about how do we help keep it from moving in that direction? How How can we have a view of God that doesn't fall into a view of power, specifically the, the view of, of, of control and, and um, mastery over things. We're going to kind of be leaving some of the euthyphro and talking more of Christian theology in these next couple episodes, but I'm sure Travis will find an excuse to talk about Plato as well. What we started this whole series on <laughs> was this disagreement between Socrates and euthyphro in the euthyphro. Where Socrates, where Euthyphro talks about uh, Zeus attacking his father and Zeus's father, Cronos attacking his father, uh, and how this justifies what Euthyphro is doing. And Socrates says, indeed, Euthyphro, this is the reason why I am a defendant in the case, because I find it hard to accept things like that being said about the gods. And it is likely to be the reason why I shall be told I do wrong. That's in uh, Euthyphro 6a. And so Socrates is considered impious because he doesn't believe these stories about the gods being violent and having enmity and all this kind of stuff. And Euthyphro says, yes, that is in fact how the gods are. And then 
the idea of piety is built upon that, and the euthyphro dilemma ri- uh, arises directly out of that. And we talked about that in the previous discussions. So what what I want to talk about today is I, w- I think there are two salient features about a sophist God that kind of stand out. Well, that's what salient means, so I'm being redundant. Two salient features about a sophistic God that I want to that I want to talk about, and I want us to look at the story of Christianity in light of these two features. So, what does the story of Christianity look like under a of under a God of sophistry or a sophistic God? And I think I th- I think we might find that it sounds a lot like the story of Christianity that we're used to telling ourselves. And the reason is, is because we're all sophists. So, uh, which is <laughs> that, uh, that's almost interchangeable with the word sinner, so, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. So the first feature is, okay, well, the first thing we, we see with Euthyphro and Socrates, that the, the main thing about the gods is that they are powerful. That That is their essential characteristic is the power to, to control. And this is this is complicated because power to control isn't even necessarily a bad thing, as as we'll see as we get through further in this discussion. It's not really. It's more like the power to kill, or the, I almost want to say it's something like the power to reduce something to its parts so that you can digest it. Almost, it's like the power to eat things. Is almost the way I'd want to put it. So think about this: you have a you have a person before you, and they're their own person, and so they're living their life, and you're in conflict with another. This is kind of sort of like Hegel's master-slave dialectic, but they're they're doing their own thing. How do you get them to? How do you get them to do what you want them to do? Well, you have to undermine their personhood, reduce them to, or break them down so that you can find whatever desire or fear they have that you can use to control them so that their personality is controlled by that fear of des- or desire over which you have control. So you're breaking them down so that now they are a slave to your will. And this is this describes about 99% of human inter- interaction, including yours, including yours with people that you love. 99% well, of what we do is try to control people in this way. I... I would say maybe maybe a parenting example is uh, very accurate here because you know when you're trying to to get your kids teach your kids how to make good decisions, you uh, will sometimes play on their desires. It's not sometimes you will often play on their desires and fears. Always. <laughs> <laughs> to but with with the goal being that you you're showing that you're you're getting in touch with something that's important to them in order to try and help them see the importance of this other thing. Yes. Yeah. And And, and so this isn't necessarily bad. It depends on the direction. If the direction is to build them up so that they might become good, that's one thing. If the goal is to get them so that now you control them, that's a bad thing. Right. Right. So if, if if the goal is, if the goal ends with me, with my control, that's not good. If the goal ends with them becoming fully who they're meant to be. And we've talked about this in past episodes, fully who they're meant to be. That's, that's a good thing. So what I mean by this kind of power to control is, is primarily the capacity to break things down and break people down so that you might control them. So you can kind of, maybe I should call it the weekend at Bernie's power. 
Bernie dies. You, I don't remember all the details of it, but they want to continue having the party. So they pretend like he's alive, right? right. They're mo- so they're moving his body around. And by the way, the easiest kind of person to control is a dead person. And in fact, the more you control someone, the more they're like a dead person. Because they themselves are not acting or willing. They are simply inan- they're inanimate matter in the, in the original sense, right? They have no spirit. They have no soul. They're merely matter being moved around by you. So that's why being con- being controlled by fear, being controlled simply by your bodily desires and all this kind of stuff is sort of like being dead. If, or, if that's controlling you, if that's all there is that's controlling right, you. Right, right. And in, in the sense that you're not you're not controlling yourself. You're not the one making the decisions. Things outside of yourself, outside of, of your your spirit are the things that are making decisions yeah. for you. Yeah. And instead of capturing up those desires and using them, uh, so even that, so, uh, you know, even in Christianity, right, the central act of worship is an act of eating, which seems really bodily, but that's being caught up in, in being sanctified, right? right. Uh, as opposed to this food for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? Uh, that's not... Well, the whole Jacob Esau story. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So the idea is that the gods, the, the primary the essential attribute of the gods to Euthyphro and to the sophists is that of power and not meaning power to control in some sort of building up or creative sense, but the, really the power to break down and consume. We, I just call it the power of death or empire power, right? It's probably perhaps the best way to put it. Okay. So Socrates disagrees. Well, he well, thinks- let, let, let's say a little more on that because okay. the, these these gods, the, the sophistic god, is about breaking down others for his or her benefit. It, it's it's not it's not any. I mean, it might you know, they might the, the gods might say it's for your benefit that you benefit me, kind of thing. But it's it's not the concern. The, the way they see others is as how can my life be made better by their by their doings. And so if I have to control them, you know, break them down, then great. It'd be wonderful if I didn't even have to do that. And they just saw that their life is best if they're, you know, doing what, what's to my benefit. Um, but right. Yeah. So yeah, it's, that, it's, that, it's a business interaction. Yeah. It, 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 the concern is not primarily for the, the individuals. The concern is for the God, him or herself and, how can that God be made uh, as great or as comfortable or whatever as possible? Yeah. Book one of the Republic, Thrasymachus describes rulers as when when uh, Socrates tries to talk about shepherds and how their concern is for the sheep. Thrasymachus says, you realize that they're raising these livestock to be used for themselves. The sheep are for the shepherd. The shepherd is not for the sheep. And Socrates disagrees with them, and it becomes a very interesting conversation. But the point is, the view of the the sophistic view of the gods is Thrasymachus's view of rulers, that rulers rule over the people so that they might gain more for themselves, which, by the way, happens to be the case most of the time, if not all the time. But Socrates doesn't think the gods are that way. What Joel's saying is that when when and this is actually the first characteristic of a god of sophistry that god is a being that desires to gain and possess more right and and to do that by 
taking from you or controlling you. Now, if you're if you're perfectly submissive, God might be super nice, just like somebody in a business relationship will be super nice to you if you're pouring a ton of money into their business. As long as you're giving to them and benefiting them, they'll be kind to you. If you're not giving or benefiting them, or if you're in some way hurting them, then they hate you or they exclude you or they destroy you or they seek some, really, they seek some way to try to break you down so that they might use you. So promise of reward, fear of punishment, one of the primary ways. Uh, Okay, so that's the first characteristic. The second characteristic really just comes out from this, and that is that all of God's actions from creation to establishing moral law to redemption were done merely to feed this desire for more, God's desire for more. Remember, this is the sophistic view. This isn't this yeah, isn't this, the Christian view. This yeah, is the sophistic view. And and when I say desire for more, I'm being very like I'm I'm referencing Plato here and his term pleonexia. That 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 unrelenting desire for more that is at the heart of injustice to Plato. Uh, Plato sees this as 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 at the, at the heart of injustice. The God of the sophists is a God of pleonexia, a God who desires more. Okay. So we could say something like this. God is selfish, but selfish is a, is a weird word. Uh, but let's, it's the way we normally use that term would apply to the God of sophistry. Again, we're describing a sophistic God, right? We're, we're describing the God of youth or if Euthyphro became a Christian, quote unquote, became a Christian in scare quotes, but held to his view of the divine. This is how he would view the Christian story. So now let's look at the Christian story. And I've heard, by the way, I've heard atheists tell the story like this. So, and I'm not sure I've heard a good response from Christians, except that the atheist has a bad attitude, (laughs) something like that. So, but let's just tell the story and see if this sounds familiar to you in terms of Christianity. So th- what we're going to do, we're taking these two salient features about the sophistic God. We're going to, we're going to expl- tell the Christian story in light of that God and see if it sounds familiar or see if you disagree with it. Okay. Uh, so God created the world so that the world might glorify him. So far, so good, right? Sin, I need to quit saying right. Sin, (laughs) which is simply refusing to obey God's will, refusing to glorify God, entered the world when humans tried to gain knowledge for themselves, when they, you might say, grew up. God then reveals himself to and through certain individuals, sharing his commands that we should love and worship him and no other gods, and that we should love each other, which I don't know how that fits in there. We fail in this, and so his wrath grows so much that he desires to kill us for failing to feed his ego. But he also cares for us, which is a little bit confusing, but let me try to explain it in terms of a sophistic worldview. So God is really angry at us, full of wrath, but also cares for us. How can we explain this? Well, if God is selfish, in the way that we've described, this is how you'd say it. God desires to have us, but like a jilted lover, we never love him back. So because he can't have us, 
He will destroy us, even torturing us for eternity. So God, again, is like a jilted lover who also happens to be a narcissistic sociopath. So far, so good. We got ourselves, is this Christianity? Well, it's sophistic I, Christianity. Right. And I mean, I I would also, for another parallel as to, you know, what what this sophistic view of God who, who would, quote unquote, care for, for us, you could even think of it like a, like a slave owner. Because the slave owner needs the slaves to do work in order to benefit from the slaves. And so he cares that the slaves stay alive and that they are able to do work for him. But he doesn't really care about their actual well-being beyond how does it benefit him. Yes. And Euthyphro, when he tells, or actually Protagoras, when he tells the story, Protagoras is another sophist. We talked about him previous podcast uh, in Plato's Protagoras. When he tells the story of creation, Zeus finally steps in and gives humanity a sense of justice and shame because the gods were about to lose humans and humans were important to the gods in some sort of selfish way, right? You know, they mm -hmm. fed on our worship or some such like that. So uh, Zeus, the gods save humanity because the gods want something from us. God, and that makes sense. You could say that makes sense in in this sophistic interpretation of Christianity that God is saving us because he wants something from us. And if he can't have us, you're going to burn. If he can't have you, you're going to burn in hell. So he finds a compromise. He wants us, but he's going to lose us. And so he needs to find a compromise where he can kind of save us. His wrath demands that someone be killed. He's angry enough. He needs to kill someone. And the satisfaction of anger and hatred. Think about this. When you're really angry or you're really full of hate, what's the kind of injury that most satisfies that anger, that, that satiates that, that hatred? Well, the more innocent the person is, the more it satisfies your anger and hatred. The more important the person is, the more it satisfies your anger and hatred. The more destructive it is, the more it satisfies. Yes. So the more destructive on a more innocent and more important victim, the more that is the case, the more it satisfies. Well, God's wrath is infinite because God's an infinite God. So God needs infinite satisfaction. How does God do that? Well, the only fully innocent, the, the most innocent and most important person is God. God has to suicide. Well, that's sort of weird. Luckily, God's in three persons even though we, most of us Christians don't really understand what the Trinity has to do with anything, except that God can kill himself, but not actually kill himself. And so God kills the fully innocent, fully significant one in, in his son, Jesus, and his wrath is satisfied. And therefore God can, God can put up with us, but we're only forgiven if we now change our actions. That is sort of like an unstable, jilted lover. God has calmed down by killing his son and so now is able to offer us another chance to come back to him. But if we don't come back to him, his wrath flares up again and he will torture us for eternity for refusing his advances. I, I for, mean, if you think about it, like if he's willing to do that to his innocent son, what would he be willing to do to, to a peon like you? Let that be a warning to you. <laughs> Furthermore, that uh, because God has offered us another chance, as Nietzsche suggests in the genealogy of morality, by the way, 
this in fact increases our sense of guilt and debt to him. Now, this may sound like I have like I'm blaspheming, but I'm not describing Christianity. Or maybe I am, but I'm describing it through the lens of a sophist. And if you've ever heard an atheist, again, if you ever heard an atheist talk about Christianity, talk about God, they might not tell the whole story, but little little sentences in here should reflect very clearly the kind of God that they describe and the story of Christianity that they describe and the view of soteriology that they describe. And I've heard this many times over and over and over again in snippets or in whole from, in fact, I had this, I had this, uh, an atheist student in one of my classes, a philosophy of religion class, and this is precisely, not precisely, not the same words, but this is essentially how he described it. He said, God created a bunch of beings to glorify him, doesn't give them enough evidence to even know that he exists, but in his narcissism demands that they glorify him instead of living their own lives, or he's going to torture them for eternity. That sounds like a terrible, monstrous God to me. Why would I want to even believe that that God exists? And I, I've heard Christians use those same, that same structure to tell the story of Christianity. But the idea, normally we justify it, not by saying, wait, 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 wait. You're not really describing Christianity or you're using a lot of the facts of Christianity, but you're misinterpreting them because your evaluative outlook is all screwed up. You're looking at it through a sophistic lens. Rather, we say, well, you know, God's really powerful, so he's got the big guns. In other words, we say, might makes right. He's the creator of the universe. He, he gets to set the rules how he wants to set them. Yeah, and that's, so let's, let's, let's stop and go back to that very point. So what, what is really, imagine, imagine if we interpreted God. Now, this might be a little crazy, and I might be going off into heresy, but bear with me here. Imagine if we interpret, if we got our understanding of God by looking at Jesus. Now, <laughs> I know that sounds a little crazy for some of you systematic theologizers and those of you who go straight to Romans instead of reading the Gospels, but <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to offend everyone. But imagine that, that we interpreted the nature of God by looking at Jesus. What would that mean? Or let, let me, let's let's do this. Imagine that we interpreted the nature of God by going back to creation. So what is creation? What is the difference between a sophistic creation and the creation of Christianity, found in Christianity, in Genesis 1? Imagine I'm a creator. I mean, I am. Every, every human's a creator, right? We always create stuff, usually chaos and pain and suffering and loneliness and abandonment and so on and so forth. But let's say I actually make something. Well, I take a bunch of stuff from the world around me, build it into something, and it improves my condition, generally speaking. Uh, there's a lot of things I've created that haven't improved anybody's condition. But let's say I, you know, I build a house, I take trees, I take whatever, dirt, mud, whatever, and I, and I create a house that improves my condition. But that's not how God created. God created what we say, we created, he created ex nihilo, right? which means he created out of nothing, which means all things that are created, they cannot add to him. Now, if you look at something like uh, something, a, a lot of pagan creation stories, it's something like a couple of gods were fighting. Where'd the gods come from? Eh. But they were fighting. And then one God killed another one and then took the body of that God and created things out of it. And then all things were made to worship that God. And basically what the God has done is he found a way to utilize the other God's body. I'm thinking of Tiamat and uh, Marduk. Use the other God's body 
to create more glory for him, for him or herself. That's not what God did. If God created ex nihilo, then the world can add nothing to God, which means God can't possibly need anything from us. In fact, God is creating out of an abundance, out of an overflowing, self-giving abundance. That's what creation ex nihilo declares. It's not a... It's a big deal that God didn't create that didn't God didn't create from another God's body because that means there would be more than one God and God wasn't the original and so on and so forth. But one of the most interesting things is that this means that God cannot possibly need it. We cannot add anything to God, which means if God created us, there can really only be one reason God created us because He wants to give to us. But yeah. that's it. Otherwise, otherwise. It doesn't make any sense because why? What could God possibly get from us? And so, and by the way, that lines up perfectly with looking at Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, he came down and he told everybody, "Hey, give me stuff, worship <laughs> me, glorify me, or I'm going to beat the tar out of you." No, he came down as a servant. He washed his disciples' feet, which is insane. He died on the cross. He died. He didn't just die. He died while being despised. He died utterly unjustly. And in his self-giving overabundance, the creator raised him from the dead. Death was overcome because the power of self-giving abundance, that is the power that created the world, is more power than that which is more powerful than that which destroys. Now, that which destroys is the God, is the power of the God of the sophists. It breaks down and consumes so that it might use for themselves. The power of God is the power of overabundance, self-giving creativity, creation. So imagine if we read the Christian story through the lens of looking at God as creator or, which is the same thing, looking at Jesus. Well, that's what we're supposed to do, right? The problem is we interpret Jesus through the lens of a sophistic and uh, a, a sophistic metaphysics, we interpret creation through the lens of a sophistic metaphysics, or we could say a sophistic uh, evaluative outlook. Or to put it another way, if I may be so bold, we interpret God as a as a sinner sees everything through a lens of sin. Let me push back a little bit, just a little mm-hmm. bit. All right. When we read the Old Testament, if we don't know that Jesus is coming, if we don't know that Jesus is the conclusion of everything, doesn't it look like God is a bit of a sophist sometimes? Like the sophists are getting God right in the Old Testament? It does. I think uh, this is where there is, this is why I appeal to creation and Jesus. Because I think they both said that. And you could see this even with, even in the book of uh, Exodus, for example, right? God gives the moral commands, but he doesn't give the commands to the Israelites before saving them. He gives the commands to the Israelites after having saved them and after saying, you will be my people. This is how my people live, which, by the way, is the structure of almost all of Paul's letters. This is who you are. This is how people who are what you are live. So start living like what you actually are instead instead of uh, trying to get saved by living this way, right? This is this by grace through faith stuff, uh, which seems pretty important for Christianity. So 
in in light of creation, you get this you get the sense that God is God has this overabundance. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar, and this could get really complicated because we could start picking out particular stories where God acts a lot like a tribal God, giving his people power to kill the bad guys, which seems like God is just exerting or using the power of death, just like any other God, just like a tribal God, just like a just like an emperor to destroy the bad guys, whatever, you know, whatever the bad guys are. Bad guys are whoever aren't on my side. But we need to understand that in the in the whole context of what's going on here. The, the, and I think there are two primary primary elements that come into this. First of all, in fact, we need to look at the story, but we're going to have to save that for the next episode when we retell the story. But these will be two things that are mentioned. The first off is that this is all in the context of God, God trying to save people who are enamored of the power of death. We are enamored of it. Why? Because exerting this kind of power is how you become successful in the world. You make alliances, you make money, you kill a bad guy, you threaten the bad guy, you threaten the other person. You threaten, you exclude, you kill, you control, you put all your trust in mammon. Right? You, you, you do all of this kind of stuff. You sacrifice your children so that you might have more and more and more and more. That is our life, and that is how you succeed in this world. That's how you still succeed in this world. That's how you succeed in the church, by the way. So you... At least the way it <laughs> tends to work out. That's not, not necessarily how it's supposed to work out in the church, but too often it does. It, yeah, I, that might be a little harsh. I apologize, but I kind of stand by my words. So, but that's 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 how you that's how you succeed in the world, right? You you succeed by doing the thing that uh, I get into details. Just I'll apologize and shut up. But basically, the world is filled with that, right? How do you how do you how do you have a big how do you get more money? How do you have more power? How do you have a bigger house? How do you have a nicer car? How do you have this? How do you have that? Well, you can glad hand a little bit, but the idea is that you want to try to find those ways to pull levers in people to break them down to the point where you're not dealing with a person because that's, you don't make money by dealing with people. You make by with, with a person in terms of a person, you make money by dealing with bodies. You make money by dealing with desires, dealing with, with power, control, manipulation. That's how you make money. That's how you get money. That's how you get power. And by the way, that isn't always wrong. Having desire for some control isn't always wrong. I don't think it's wrong for us to deal with people in that way. It's wrong to deal with people only in that way or for the sake of ourselves, to take people and control them for the sake of ourselves instead of instead of maybe doing a little bit of manipulation to build up their, their, their ability to be fully who they are. Right, but that's complicated. We'll get to a little bit of that in the story, in telling the Christian story, that is in a not sophist way, not sophist way. But that I'll have to wait for the next episode. So far, I just tried to make Christianity sound absolutely terrible in light of a sophist view. The problem is that this is how, I mean, this is how I saw Christianity for most of my life. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not sure it's anybody's fault specifically, or maybe it's kind of all our fault, all our faults. I think it might be the fault of sin. That sin has twisted our understanding of Jesus, twisted our understanding of God in a way that we don't even recognize because it's too deep down inside of us. 
It's too close to us. It's a lens that is on our eyeballs. And it's not even a set of glasses. It's our contact lenses through which we see the world. So that's how close sophistry ties to us. And if Plato is right, there's two ways of looking at the world, the, Plato, the platonic view or the sophist view. Christianity makes no sense in terms of the sophist view. It makes God out to be a sociopathic, jilted lover type of God who's seeking to get something from us. But that doesn't make any sense in light of Jesus, and it doesn't make any sense in light of God creating the world, ex nihilo. So what would Christianity look like understood in a more platonic way, or at least a non-sophist way, whatever that happens to be? We'll get to that next episode. But for this, we're done. I'm Travis. I'm Joel. All you need is love, and have a great day. Bye.